Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G., Thank you all for tuning in. We're so happy to be back. We took a little break, a little mental health break. There's just so much going on in the world, and it's nice to take a breather, to refocus, but we have so many great episodes for you coming up. We have this one in particular with Brie Castellini. Brie Castellini is a queer indie filmmaker and podcaster. She identifies as bisexual and asexual, which we delve into both of those deep into this episode and she's so well spoken and I just I had such an amazing time talking to her. She has a short film called Ace and Anxious about an asexual girl with anxiety who places an ad for sex on Craigslist after learning of the stress relieving properties of sex. Free wrote, directed, produced, and edited it, and the film has 145,000 views on YouTube. That's amazing. She also created two web series, Brains And Sam and Pat are depressed, they're hilarious, they're well-written, they're entertaining, and we're so happy to delve into Bree's life and her art, and yeah, before we get to the episode, of course, we always have a few announcements. Like I said, we have some great episodes coming up, so stay tuned for that. We also have a lot of merch we'd love to get to you. We have some really cool stuff, it's all at teepublic, T-E-E-public.com. You can search for Near and Queer to My Heart there. We have links in the show notes. We have links on our social media. So check that out. Support us. Send us some love and get some cool swag. All right. Well, let's get to the episode. Let's get to Brie Castellini. Brie Castellini, how are we doing tonight? We are, we're doing okay. I'm at the hopefully tail end of a two-month cough, but I'm excited to be talking on this podcast in any case. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where are you right now? Currently based in Brooklyn, New York, but moving soon. First to Colorado and then to LA. Um, I, I grew up in Colorado, so my fiance and I are going to move in with my mom to, as like a halfway point so that we don't have to pay rent while we apartment search. But the, the eventual plan is to move to LA. Okay. And is that for work, for fun, for it's COVID and fuck it? <laughs> uh, this is this has kind of been in the works for a while. I, you know, I want to work in television and I want to work specifically in like development, writing and that kind of stuff. And that just doesn't happen in New York. There's like two writers rooms here. So uh, once I stopped working at a physical location and this is pre-COVID, so I was working largely remote even pre-COVID. I was sort of like, well, what's keeping me in New York? I hate living in New York. My fiance hates 
living in New York. All of our family is on the West Coast. Let's just move to LA and we'll be closer to all of our family. So it sort of just seemed like finally it's time. We are no longer tethered to one place. So let's try a new place. Yeah, I just I know a lot of folks that since COVID, I, as for me, I was like, I got to stay still. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. But I know a lot of folks who have, unfortunately, for the New Orleans comedy scene, we've lost a lot of good folks who, so, you know, I get it. It's an opportunity to move somewhere, especially as jobs that weren't remote are now remote. You have the ability to go somewhere else and, and try something new, which is great. And I, I encourage everyone. I always say this, you know, when you're young, travel, live a million places. <laughs> but as the older person in New Orleans, I'm like, don't leave us. Yeah, it's I mean, it's rough. We had been planning on moving really like two years ago. We started talking about moving. We just kind of had to get some some ducks in a row. And then, of course, COVID hit. So now what we're doing is uh, we're going to do like a apocalypse road trip where we take the first half of our stuff to Colorado and then come back to New York and pack up everything else and then do one more road trip. And we're just kind of taking the opportunity to take advantage of like the ghost, the ghost towns and the ghost highways and have a little bit of time away from this fucking apartment. I cannot tell you how much I do not want to be in this apartment anymore. And I also don't want to be on an airplane. So this sort of works out for us. But yeah, I for me, a lot of my friends didn't move during COVID. But what I have noticed in a lot of my especially like creative friends is a lot more people are like reexamining their priorities. And like, I would say at least half of them have questioned being in the entertainment industry at all because they're like, is it worth being miserable for the first half of my life so that I could maybe be really successful the second half? What if I just moved upstate and like bought a farm? What if that was my legacy? (laughs) And more and more people are like having that conversation with themselves of like, what if paying your dues is actually just a lie and I'm just going to be miserable for no reason? I would rather just like be happy now. And it's been very interesting to watch all of these people who were previously super driven and ambitious to like go after this one goal suddenly think to themselves, what's the point? So that's been very interesting for me to watch because I I feel that. But I'm like, I've invested too much time. I'm going to stick at it for a little bit longer, at least. Yeah. Also, for me, a farm sounds... I know people love farms. They just sound so miserable. You got to (laughs) wake up early. You got to go do some physical stuff. Uh, it just there's mud that does not sound like the life for me. Uh, see, I, I grew up in um, Western Colorado. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up in a farming community. My neighbors were cornfields. And even we we had an acre of land uh, where I grew up and we had goats and chickens and dogs and rabbits and a whole number of other things. So I, I'm used to having like not a full farm, but you know, animals that you don't normally have in a home. Uh, and I definitely miss that. I cannot wait to someday have a house with a little bit of land and a couple of goats and dogs and some chickens. And I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I actually don't mind getting up early if it's not in the city. For some reason, being in any city makes me feel like I want to sleep in all day. But as soon as I'm anywhere, you know, that's even slightly rural or outside of the city, I can get up at 5am no problem. Something about like the air is different. And I'm like, I don't feel quite so oppressed atmospherically here. (laughs) I can do anything. Yeah, maybe that's I grew up in the suburbs. So there's certain things about the suburbs that are like comfort. So you you know, you grew up with with animals with waking up early, there's certain chain restaurants that are a comfort to me. Malls are a comfort to me because that's what I grew up with. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so before we get uh, into your your timeline from Western Colorado, New York, everything in between, um, I did want to address this up top because I think these are ongoing conversations within the queer community. You identify as bi and asexual, is that right? That is correct. 
I feel like those are both parts of the queer community that there's a lot of invisibility. Sure. And I think it is important to to talk about that. I mean, I've in New Orleans, I run, uh, well, I used to, uh, hopefully still do on hiatus, <laughs> not canceled, a queer storytelling show. And after, you know, sometimes I'd have someone who identifies as bi come on and they would talk about a heteronormative relationship. Um, and after the show, I'd get some people that would, you know, come up to me and say, like, I don't want to hear that at a queer show. Um, and I would say this performer is queer. If you identify as queer, you are welcome on our stage and you can talk about whatever you want. Um, but there's definitely, you know, I think that's the most prominent time when I've been faced with that pushback. That sucks. And I get it. I genuinely do. But I think it also, it comes from that same place of people who like take pictures of straight seeming couples at pride. And then it turns out later on, like, oh, no, one of these people is transgender or something. Oh, well, then they're okay. And it's like, well, then how are you just going to make some sort of assumption about somebody's sexuality? Because from the outside, it appears heterosexual, because that's very belittling to just make assumptions. And the whole point of being open about, you know, your gender expression and your sexuality and being open to people who have different expressions of that from you to just not assume, like, isn't that what we're all supposed to be collectively doing? But also just just because you have, you know, male partners, male romantic relationships as a, a female identifying person doesn't invalidate your feelings for women and your relationships with women. You know, it's it's not like you're betraying your queer family when you date in a binary way that society accepts. Statistically, most bisexual people end up with opposite sex partners just because statistically that's more socially acceptable. The dating pool is easier to access in a lot of places. So I, I think that it's less a failing of the queer community to police properly to make sure that only the, the right kind of queer people are allowed in. I think it's a failing of society not making sexuality a, a more accepting and open thing to like explore. So, you know, I obviously, as someone who identifies as sort of the two kinds of sexuality spectrums that are most derided and most invisible, potentially, I definitely have seen a lot of that nonsense. And it's very frustrating. But I also, on the other hand, have very complicated feelings about it. Because for most of my life, I thought I was straight because of heteronormativity, and also of uh, compulsory heterosexuality really kept me down for a long time. But it turns out, just having a couple of straight leaning opinions does not in fact make you straight. And so like, there's also a part of me that's like, well, I'm not straight. I'm functionally in no way heterosexual, but from the outside, I am a cis woman dating a cis man. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like I'm in a heterosexual relationship. So do I have a space in the queer community? Do I have a space on a queer podcast? I think a lot of people would have a lot of different opinions. And that's a really weird place to be as someone who has found a great amount of comfort in learning more about and identifying as different queer identities. And like the amount of comfort that it has brought me in my life makes me absolutely sure in who I am. And it's a little bit rough to like have people constantly be debating your inclusion in spaces that are the first place that you realized, oh, I'm not broken. I just didn't know the the right words for what I was. Uh, so yeah, those are my <laughs> those are my <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> I thought I thought you might have some opinions and, th and thoughts on that. Um, have you had a deal with that with anybody? Have you had any instances where anybody was? in your face about it or with your art has challenged that at all? Not really, because for me, it's been 
in the past what, five years ish that I've I came out and I you know went through that whole thing because I've been with my straight male partner for seven years uh, and then I didn't know that I was asexual or bisexual until I was in this relationship so outwardly nothing really changed it was just more a lot of inward introspection also I'm an introvert so I don't go out <laughs> so nobody <laughs> has the chance to be like hey you you don't belong here because like I'm at home I do belong here. I pay for this rent. So yeah, I've been lucky that I've been shielded from that. And largely I've been shielded with passing privilege of being straight. So I've also been shielded sort of from the other side of things where, you know, the queer community doesn't realize that, you know, I'm wrong. I'm an imposter, but neither does the straight community. I'm hidden from both. It's very exciting, very secret agent. Like uh, I've definitely gotten some, uh, not personally, but like my work occasionally will get snide comments on YouTube or something about sexuality is just a bunch of whiny virgins or you know things like that but I've never I've never talked to anyone that was weird about bisexuality for the most part any kind of negative weirdness is relating to asexuality I think with asexuality I and this is just personal opinion I feel like it's misunderstood in a lot of ways and in your short film ace and anxious it's within I think two minutes there is the comment of this asexuality is misunderstood and um, is, I think, I'm going to say this word wrong, diminutized, diminutive, made smaller. <laughs> Diminished? <laughs> Diminished. Is that? Uh, I think that's what you're trying to say. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I wonder if some people feel that, that there's not a place for that in the queer community. If some people feel that there is uh, definitely a, a place for asexuals in the queer community. And if that misunderstanding, if that's happened to you, if that's, is there a coming out? I have a lot of questions, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Is there a coming out journey for that? There definitely is. I mean, for me in particular, because I was in a long term, at the time, long distance, sexually active relationship, coming out to my partner as uh, someone who does not frequently or pretty much at all experience sexual attraction. I do not experience sexual attraction, which is the sort of defining thing of asexuality. And so coming out to my partner who I was sexually active with as someone who does not experience sexual attraction certainly required a coming out process. So what I ended up doing is after I did a lot of soul searching and like research and talked to a bunch of people and came to terms with, oh, this makes sense. I finally understand why I felt so weird for so long, but I thought that I was broken. It turns out, no, there's just a different word for it. I compiled what I've been calling my my sexuality dissertation. So I put a four page document together that was part letter <laughs> to my partner. Because again, he was he was in a fully different country when I came out to him, poor thing. So he was he was in Scotland, I was in New York. So I wrote him a four page letter slash research dissertation where I took quotes from Avon from the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, which is like one of the main ace nonprofits and from forums that I'd found all this stuff. And so I took like basically evidence that I had gathered. And then I kind of went through point by point of like, okay, this is what asexuality is from my research. These are the things that I specifically identify as. So this is, you know, my evidence for, yep, it's me. And then these are, these are my thoughts about how I see this changing or honestly, not all that often changing our relationship. You know, I still love you, all of this stuff. Uh, I hope we can, you know, have a conversation about it. And we did. And frankly, our sex life got better because I stopped having like different expectations for myself, expectations that other people gave me because of their understanding of sexuality. And we're still together. We're engaged now. We've been together for seven and a half years. But that it was definitely a rough couple of months because we were in fully different countries while I was having these mind changing, life changing realizations about my own sexuality, but we got through it with through open communication and all was good. But yeah, definitely, I think 
asexuality has a slightly different coming out process and i think it would change from person to person because for the same the same way that everything else is asexuality is a spectrum so some people identify as gray asexual which means that they only occasionally experience sexual attraction some people are demisexual which means that they only experience sexual attraction after forming a deep emotional connection um and even then sometimes it it doesn't happen uh so like there's a lot of different ways that asexuality presents. And, you know, for each individual case, I'm sure that, you know, each individual person has their own way of dealing with it. For me, a lot of my coming out was very public through my film Ace and Anxious, through other work that I've done, through interviews that I've done, through podcasts that I've done. Because for me, what was so frustrating about learning I was asexual is that I learned it at 23 years old. I'd never heard of the concept. No one had ever told me that asexuality was a thing, let alone that it was a valid thing. And I couldn't believe that nowhere in media canon could I find anything to like look to. You know, when I learned to identify as brainy and when I learned to like identify as a tomboy, all these things, like there is media representation, there is validation in the stories that we all consume culturally of these other things that I learned to identify as, but there was nothing for asexuality. So of course I didn't know that that's what I was. Of course I didn't realize it was an option. Of course I thought I was broken because, you know, if you experience, you know, if you are asexual, but you don't realize that that's a thing, there's just something missing in your life, allegedly. And so then you're constantly frustrated trying to find it, blaming yourself for not being the way that everyone expects you to be. But then when you discover that that's a totally valid thing and you're not missing anything, you just don't have this thing that everyone else assumes should be there, then that changes your whole life. You suddenly have a totally different outlook and acceptance of your own self. So for me, I felt really strongly about talking about asexuality a lot because I want to be the last kind of person who has to discover their sexuality at random. I want it to just be an assumed thing that when you're talking about sexuality, asexuality gets brought up. I want to make sure that there are characters that are funny and weird and relatable and sometimes evil or whatever who are asexual so that people have the opportunity to see themselves on screen and realize that it is possible for them to identify this way and have full fulfilling lives so that I could have just come out to one person, but I ended up essentially coming out to everyone because I had such a rough experience of it and I wanted to do my tiny little part to make sure nobody else had that experience. And thank you for sharing. That's really interesting. You wrote a letter. So you wrote a letter, a dissertation letter. <laughs> Yes, sexuality dissertation, <laughs> please. I had cited my sources. <laughs> <laughs> we had footnotes. We had footnotes. <laughs> you put it in an envelope, you mailed it to another country, and then you had to wait like a week? <laughs> no, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, snail mail it. So what I did was I emailed it to him and I was like, hey, I'm emailing you something right now. Are you, first I had to email him if, if he was awake because he was five hours ahead of me and I don't remember what time I wrote this, but I was like, hey, are you awake? So he's like, yes. And I was like, hey, I'm about to send you something and you to read it and then immediately video call me. Oh, wow. See- That's all I, <laughs> I need you to just do this for me. Because like, you know, obviously the preference would be to come out in person and to be able to have like a conversation and to be able to like hold hands and hug and like have that kind of physical reassurance because we have very opposite love languages. So like when we have to talk about a difficult thing, like he, his love language is physical touch, affection, cuddling, hugging, that kind of stuff. And mine is acts of service. Uh, and I don't know how much stock I put into like the concept of love languages in general, but broadly speaking, it's a useful way to kind of think about my own relationship. So like, I don't usually need physical contact, which, huh, 
in hindsight, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I don't find all that much comfort. You know, occasionally I do. It's not like I'm, you know, cold and distant. I like hugging and cuddling, but I don't really need it. I don't feel a lack of it if I don't have it for a while. Uh, but he does. And so like, obviously, I would want to do it in person. But he was gonna, I think, coming to visit me in like a month or something. And I thought, it would be weird if he was there for like a week to drop a bombshell on him the first day that he got there or on the last, like I was like, there's no timing where this makes sense. So I might as well just do it now, rip the bandaid off, let him sit with it. But like, I did want to talk to him. So yeah, so I sent it off and immediately made him video call me because I didn't want him to stew over it. I was like, I want you to immediately come in and ask me any questions you have. We are going to have a conversation. And true to his word, he did. And we had a conversation. And then the next day we had another one and we just kept talking and we, we figured out what it meant to us and what we meant to each other. And you know, the rest is history. Yeah, I, I, I still have, I have this image of you like writing this letter and addressing it. And then, and then <laughs> putting like a <laughs> wax seal on it. <laughs> and then just that week in between, you know, g- getting to Scotland, just like your life. <laughs> I mean, like I before I wrote the dissertation, like when I knew like, okay, I got to do this tonight. I was like having panic attacks on the subway. Oh, um, so you said after that, you know, that you had a choice to essentially come out to one person or come out to everybody and come out in your work and in your art. What was that process? That was a little bit more organic. Once things sort of clicked into place, I was like, well, this is a fucking ridiculous thing that happened to me. I have to write about it. Also, I'm freaked out all the time and I'm having like a lot of mental health crises that are unrelated to this. So perhaps there's a way to do them both. So like Ace and Anxious, the film, um, we shot it in 2016. I had come out in early, I think I'd actually come out earlier that year, maybe, uh, or maybe like late the year before, I don't remember exactly. But like, it had been less than a year since I had come out to my partner when I made Ace and Anxious. So Ace and Anxious was kind of like my public way of wrestling with all of the things and the weirdness of navigating a romantic relationship with an allosexual person as an asexual person. Allosexual is somebody who does experience sexual attraction. And it was also sort of an unpacking of how frustrating being depressed is because I think that that's something that's not talked about very much either. Most depictions of depression, and this is changing a little bit and it has changed substantially since I made the film, but you know, at the time, most of the depictions of depression and anxiety in media were like really depressing. (laughs) And I know that that seems obvious, but it was actually not very helpful because basically the way that media portrayed that kind of stuff, there was very dark contrast. Somebody was crying in the rain. It was all black and white, but then the way that the protagonist or whoever got through the depression was either through sheer force of will, okay. Or they went to therapy for like an hour and then had like a massive breakthrough and then never went to therapy again. And I was like, that's not anyone's experience with mental illness as far (laughs) as I have seen. And I know I, you know, I, I credit that kind of representation to the reason that so many of my friends and myself included didn't seek help for a long time when like we were kids and young adults, because we were like, well, we're not that depressed. So clearly we must just be whining, but depression is not one size fits all. (laughs) Or you, I've had this, you know, I've had friends and family members that went to one therapy session and was like, I don't need therapy. The, the therapist said I was doing all right. And I oh was like, God. no, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's, they would be out of business if everyone walked in, had one hour session and they were like, great, go out in the world. Yeah, I know. And, and like, and also 
not every therapist is going to be right for you. Yeah, it's a whole thing. But yeah, it, it's a problem because when you have this really skewed understanding of what therapy is, what depression is, you have to be this depressed to ride the roller coaster, then you start to think, oh, well, I must not be depressed. I must just be a whiner. So I've got to get through it. You know, I got to be like this manly protagonist who just muscles through his own sadness and then comes out the other side. Uh, and that's, I think, really fucking damaging to a lot of people, especially young people who are the ones mostly consuming this sort of media. So Ace and Anxious was sort of my answer to both of those problems of like a lack of seeing anyone who talked about asexuality at all on screen and also a lack of anyone who genuinely talked about what it was like to live with mental illness every day. And so that kind of ace and anxious sort of became my coming out. And like a couple of people had known by then, but like for the most part, my asexuality doesn't really affect anyone except for my partner and anyone who has like seen my work and felt comforted or seen by it. So for the most part, people in my life like do not care. <laughs> they have no interest in my sexuality or lack thereof. So you know, that that was luckily fine. And then same with bisexuality. When I realized uh, I saw a photo shoot of Tessa Thompson one day and I was like, oh, and suddenly a lot of things sort of backtracked and came into place fully, came finally into focus. That also doesn't really affect anyone. So nobody really cares that I'm bisexual because again, still with a cis male partner, have no you know interest in exploring things outside of that. So it's sort of just like, huh, I bet dating would have been a lot more fun had I known this earlier, but you know, here I am. <laughs> That's how I, I didn't come out till after college. And I'm just like, oh man, I could have I, I could have had a good old time. <laughs> Such a missed opportunity. Because like thinking back, like there's like several girls in my past that I'm like, I bet we would have dated. I don't think it would have lasted, but it would have been fun. Because, you know, I have a handful of boys that I dated a long time ago. They were terrible mistakes, but like they're great stories at parties. And man, I could have had like at least a handful more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tessa Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> I and, the, and the, you know what you want to know like the most devastating part of this is that I can't find the photo shoot again like I'd seen like a uh, a photo spread on Tumblr I think it was and I can't find it and I I can see it in my brain but I've not been able to track it down since I, I sometimes think that it might be a figment of my imagination a photo shoot of Tessa Thompson manifested to like unlock the bisexuality in me and then just sort of <laughs> transcended into the ether yeah and you're like I swear it's out there and everyone's like okay <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I know you're a, so I know you're a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. When did you know that's what you wanted to do and how did you start doing it? Not that long ago to be honest. Through college, I was a prose writer. Like I was convinced that I was going to graduate college. I went to college in Oregon and I was going to work at a coffee shop by day and be a novelist by night. That was the plan. And that was the plan basically through graduating. But like the semester before my senior year and I was starting to think of like, all right, what's my future? Am I really just going to be a barista slash novelist? All of my professors were terrified by that prospect. They were like, you can't just do that. And I'm like, but it sounds pretty magical. And they're like, please, God, don't do this to us. And I was listening to a podcast called uh, the Nerdist Writers Panel. It's now just called the Writers Panel. But it was a podcast where an interviewer would just talk to like groups of two to five TV writers. And I loved TV. It's my favorite medium of art. And so I just started listening to it because I was a fan of the TV shows. But then as these writers were talking about like their career and about the process of TV writing, I was realizing, oh, shit, that's that's the kind of writing I want to do. I was the kind of prose writer that ex almost exclusively 
exclusively focused on dialogue and to the point that like my thesis advisor had to talk, like sit me down and was like, listen, your dialogue is really funny. Your characters are super distinct, but it's like they're talking in a dark room. I have no idea where anyone is. And I was like, well, I don't care about that. Someone else can <laughs> use their mind palace to fill in those details. I just want to have funny conversations. And then all these TV writers started talking and I was like, oh, I just wanted to be a screenwriter. Duh. <laughs> so I took one screenwriting class, applied to one graduate program, uh, the TV writer studio in Brooklyn here, got in and all this happened over the course of like six months. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm doing TV writing. <laughs> and so I moved to New York City uh, about a month after I graduated college with a creative writing degree. And I took, uh, that was a two-year program during which time I came out as asexual. And the second semester of that program, we had to make a web series pilot because they want it was a writing and producing MFA that I was uh, getting my my degree in. And so the second semester, they had a web series class to kind of teach us like short form television writing. And I'll be honest, the class was not very good. But the web series I developed in it, I really, really enjoyed making. And me and a handful of classmates decided like we should make the full season. Like we only had to produce the pilot for the class, but I had written a full season and uh, the friends in my class were like, yeah, we can totally continue making the show if you want to. And so we did that. And I kind of just like got the bug from there. I was obsessed with being on set and like figuring out all of the things you needed and the energy of all the actors and the crew coming together to do something really cool and like finally getting to see words that I previously just like put on the page in real life with like real people saying the lines in ways that I couldn't even imagine. Like it was just, it was absolutely magical. And so from that class on, basically, I I couldn't stop. And so like, I, I actually stopped I stopped doing so much TV writing stuff. So like I stopped applying to fellowships for a while because I just wanted to make work. I was like, I'm no longer interested in writing something for TV. Right now, I just want to write so that I can make it next weekend with my friends because I just loved the process. And, you know, I'm kind of coming out of that. I think I've done as much as I can about in like the true, true indie space. But I mean, it's, it's the coolest thing in the world. And I have really missed being on set all year. COVID has truly taken away the one thing that I love being on a film set. And what have you been doing since COVID? Uh, You know, I ask everyone this, uh, because I do stand up comedy. And for a while, it was like Zoom shows, and then those have kind of fallen off. And now, depending on where you are, and if your state got its shit together, you can kind of do these, you know, outdoor live shows. So we are kind of getting back to performing. It's not the same. You know, I used to, you know, I used to go to shows five to seven nights a week, I'd be hitting a stage somewhere, whether it was a mic or a book show, because that's, you know, it's part of it's you got to exercise the muscles the same like you probably write, you know, daily or or close to daily. <laughs> sure. <I do. laughs> that's with comedy, you got to you don't have to perform it, I have to write it, I have to tweak it, I have to cut, add, do this and that and you have to keep doing it or, you know, I think part of it is you will lose, you know, if you don't do it for a while, you kind of do lose a little bit. But I think it's also the mentality of every that's what everyone was doing. So if you didn't go to shows, if you weren't getting booked, if you weren't doing the mics, if you weren't showing that you were working on new stuff, like you felt behind. Yeah, I mean, that I think that's just like the way that capitalism makes all artists feel. And it's a real <laughs> bummer. 
because <laughs> like <It> is. <laughs> sometimes that re- that process really works like I've definitely been in phases where it's like I just have to work every single day I've like got something going on constantly uh and like sometimes you know you're producing awesome work you know because you just like don't have time to filter yourself it just comes out of you and it's perfect and then other times and I will say that that's kind of been the case for me lately where the capitalism kind of crushes you and so like yes you're technically doing things but are they good are you proud of them do you feel good in your body and soul no absolutely not everything is bad so uh my my quarantine has been interesting because basically as soon as the pandemic hit, I got busier and not with creative work. My I work for a company called Seedenspark. Uh, it's a film crowdfunding company, technically a company crowdfunding company for artists of all kinds, but we are predominantly known for being like the the crowdfunding company for filmmakers. Um, and so I work for Seed and Spark. We all collectively agreed to take a 30% salary slash so that we didn't have to lay anybody off, which is great. But you know, 30% salary slash, that's a bummer. And I still, you know, had to work full-time hours. And in most cases had to work more than full-time hours because a lot of our, our company was doing events and we had to transition those to online. And suddenly everyone wanted to do online stuff. Remember in March and April where everyone wasn't sick of Zoom yet? So like we were doing 10 events a week sometimes you know, and I was in like seven of them. So I was suddenly working way more hours, getting paid way less and knew I was moving at the end of the year and was like, shit, what am I going to do? So then I started picking up side gigs. I was already a an adjunct at two grad programs. So I teach the web series class that I first developed my web series in um, at my old grad program. So I teach that class every fall. And then I was also, uh, I signed on to be a thesis advisor for another grad program for students looking to write web series. So I already had kind of two side hustles. But from then on, everything just sort of exploded for me. So like, because everyone was suddenly at home, and like half of my friends, and people that I made stuff with were unemployed, and half of them were kind of like me, where we were suddenly doing a lot more work, but now we were stuck at home all day and like slowly going insane. I just got so much busier. I got inundated with things, but also had way less money than I'd ever had. So it was sort of this panic spiral of like, I don't even have a chance to like complain that I have nothing going on. I have way too much going on. And you know, I I was still actively working on a number of projects at the time. I, I have my weekly podcast where we rewatch every episode of Burn Notice, you know, the television show Burn Notice, a very topical, mm-hmm. timely show to be discussing <laughs> in the year of our Lord 2020. Uh, yes. I launched a filmmaking podcast um, a couple of months ago, and that's bi-weekly, thankfully, but still a thing that I have to do. And then I'm constantly like developing new stuff for work, and I'm teaching two classes. So like, I, I have not had time to do much. I released one creative project that's not podcast related since quarantine started and it was like a bonus episode of my web series Sam and Pat are depressed because we wanted to address remote therapy but didn't want to make a full new season about it so we were like what if we do a bonus episode you know we have a lot of thoughts about (laughs) remote therapy but not maybe enough for a full season and then also uh, my co-star and co-writer on that show Chris had recently come out as a trans woman and we really wanted to have at least one canon episode of the show where she was herself and we you you know, we're really proud of the first two seasons of that show, but she presents as male in those. And that's, it's been a complicated, weird thing to promote. Cause like, we're both really proud of those episodes, but also it's not really indicative of how she identifies. And so it's kind of awkward to promote them. So we're like, well, let's just, let's just make a new episode. We can't make a full new season right now. That would be a nightmare. But yeah, we did from across the country cause she lives in LA and I'm still in New York. We remotely produced a remote therapy episode of the show so that she could come out. And also so we could just like have some 
something to do. So that came out on Halloween, but that is so far pretty much the only creative success of the quarantine. Otherwise, I've just been working. I like I work seven days a week. My first day off was election day. Uh, And by election day, I mean, of course, Saturday, Saturday (laughs) after election day. Basically, Biden got called and I was like, you know what? I'm going to celebrate by having my first day off in four months. Yeah, that's a good day to take off because everybody was drunk. (laughs) Yeah, I it was I mean, I cannot express the relief and the sound of the city around me as my neighbors pulled out their hoarded fireworks and lit them off in the neighborhood. Yeah, we had fireworks. I don't know where people are getting them. <laughs> I don't know. I, they found them. I don't. There's a lot of things I don't understand about the love that people have for Trump. Because I just I look at him and I'm like, you're a bumbling idiot that can't spell and says things like and just lies and lies and lies. And how does how do people not see through that? Uh, because people genuinely like believe that God sent Trump to us. There are there's that, but then I'm, I look at it, I'm like, okay, well, why would someone like him? And they say, oh, well, he has these conservative, maybe he has these conservative values. And I'm like, okay, well, he's been divorced twice. Um, he's you know admitted to extramarital affair. Like, how does how how does somebody who is Catholic, let's say, and will always vote Republican because they are anti-abortion? How do they reconcile that he doesn't fit all of the things that their religion believes in? I think it kind of comes down to white supremacy. You know, all those infographics that they put out after every election where it's like, this is what the result would be if only men voted. This is the result if only white men voted, things like that. And over and over and over again, the people who are voting for this kind of administration are white people, white women and white men. Because even white queers, the number of white queers that supported Trump, that percentage went up. Because uh, when push comes to shove, you can have a lot of different identity markers. But at the end of the day, white wins all. You identify as white first, everything else second. And for some people, they're not aware of it. You know, it might be subliminal to them, but they still act on that. And again, that's that's another problem of like communication and media. I have liberal white family members who get nervous when they visit me in Brooklyn because the media representation of people of color that they've seen their entire lives, you know, since like the 30s, 40s, 50s has been a very different story from the white stories that they've seen on TV. And it's just so deeply ingrained for white people to be fearful of their status being revoked, even though they don't think that they actually have a higher status, because of course, racism's over. You and I both know this. (laughs) Of course. I, I think that that's the thing, is that the central problem is white people have been on top for so long and they implicitly know that they don't want to be treated like people of other races, but they also don't explicitly know it and can't verbalize that and can't unpack how fucked up that is and try and make a change. So they'd rather just maintain the power dynamic Uh, but pretend that it's about states' rights or pretend that it's about abortion rights and not have to have this uncomfortable conversation. That's a really well put, you know, way of saying that. Because, yeah, I'm always like, I just can't wrap my brain around it. But that that all makes a lot of sense to me. And I hope that there's a shift somewhere down the line where that isn't the out of all the identities, the one that that goes to the top of the list for them. I know. I just... And the problem is that the way that that changes is thoughtful, lengthy deprogramming. You know, it's essentially a cult at this point. And I always think to the, there's this article from the Washington Post from a couple of years ago that I read twice a year. And it's basically about this kid, Derek Black, who uh, was raised in a Klansman family. You know, his uncle or godfather or somebody was David Duke. He like started a forum when he was a teenager for other teen white supremacists. And the story is about how he went to college and slowly but surely 
surely like made friends with a multicultural group of people who slowly and sh- but surely deprogrammed him from white supremacy. And now he's an active advocate against, you know, white supremacy and all that. But like, it's an inspiring article, but it's also really scary because like the amount of work that it took to deprogram one person from this sort of ideology, this violent, hateful ideology is so much work and patience. And like, he is not owed that. And he knows he's not owed that. But like no white person is owed that amount of like emotional labor by people of color. But also, it's kind of the only thing that works. And that's a hard thing to reckon with on all sides, because there's not a way to mass deprogram an entire race of people, especially because no one owes them that. They should just be better. But of course, yes. we can't, you know, yeah. we can't expect that because they're not. So, you know, in reality, they're not better than that. So what do we do about it? I fucking don't know. <laughs> that's, that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah, because he also had to be willing to to leave the environment that he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he was raised in this very probably close knit, closed off environment, to leave that and be willing to even experience something else. Exactly. Yeah, there, there were so many privileges that were laid out that allowed this story to take place. But also, and the, I think the other thing that was interesting about this article is that like, it also outlines all of the sort of talking points that people on this side of the fence, and I'm speaking Republicans, I'm speaking white supremacists, they have responses to everything. The people who give them talking points know that their positions are indefensible. They know that everything that they're saying is garbage and inherently does not value human life on a broad scale. It values certain human life, but what they've done really effectively, and this is a credit to Fox News, is that they've come up with a handful of gotcha responses that are usually completely incomprehensible, but make them feel like, oh, if I just say this back, well, then I don't have to consider this conversation anymore. So they all have these talking points where anytime somebody brings up, well, you know, what about abortion in cases of rape or incest? And they have like a ready-made response for that, you know, like they're all trained from being kids. Hey, so Some of the liberal people are going to say some shit to you. Here's what your response is. And then you just leave because you know that they're all demon monsters who are trying to trick you. (laughs) And that's the other thing is that they won't even listen to discourse because they've been trained to see discourse as like a red flag. Yeah, I think a lot of people aren't willing to have conversations. And I I think there's a big difference between arguing and fighting. Totally. Like You can argue your point and you can go back and forth and have a conversation about it. Or you could just go right to fighting. And I think the problem is that when you're talking about literally human lives and like the value of human lives, I don't think you can have an argument. You can't have a reasonable discussion about whether or not a queer person deserves to have as many rights as a straight person. Because one side of that argument is not equal to the other. You know, you can't put a false equivalency on, well, I guess the other side has good points. Like, fuck your centrism. We are not on equal playing fields. So of course, any, you know, quote unquote argument is going to become a fight. Because at that point, you are being forced, you're like the side of, you know, queerness or, you know, non-whiteness or non-binary, like, or whatever, non-normativeness, quote unquote, is then put in the position of having to defend their right to exist and make the same choice as anyone else's, you're inherently on bad footing. You should not have to justify your right to be alive in order to have a discussion with somebody. Like at the point at which that's what you're forced to support, then that's not a reasonable discussion. And you have no reason to treat this like a regular argument, like, should we get chicken or burgers tonight? You know, it's not the same thing. Yeah, you can't. It can't be the same thing. And it shouldn't be expected to. And that's the problem is that the right has convinced us that fairness means that both sides of any argument get the same playing field. Both candidates get equal time on the airwaves. Both people get equal time to speak. Both get equal coverage in news reporting. But the thing is, not everything has two sides. 
There are not two sides to should this person be alive or dead. They should just be alive, end of story. And anyone who thinks otherwise should be written off as a fraud and a grifter. And possibly a criminal. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. We got into I'm, some heavy, <laughs> we got into some heavy shit. But I'm this sorry. Is- this is like the third podcast I've been on about just like light things. This is the second queer podcast I've been on where by the end I'm like, white supremacy and capitalism are the root of all evil. <laughs> people come on here and they're trying to be funny and light it's like i just want this to go where it's gonna go and this is the mood in our country right now in the world right now and we should be talking like we should be having these conversations even if we both agree and we're on the same page we should still be having these conversations yeah, I think so. And I, I think that hopefully something that I've said has been well spoken, because something that I find comfort in is whenever I like read a hot take, or I read a Twitter thread or whatever, or I listen to a podcast, and I hear someone really articulately say something that I agree with, but hadn't heard said that way, it makes me feel not only validated, but like, oh, finally, I have a new way of talking about it. So like, maybe maybe that will be this. I do hope that's the case. And I will <laughs> ask you one more question. Well, I have two questions. One will be the How can people find you? But before that, what's next for you? Oh, God. What's on the agenda? What's on the to-do list? Is anything being released? You work. I know you said you had a bunch of projects that you're working on if you want to share any of them. Yeah. The most recent thing that I've done and I'm very proud of is my Therapist is Too Accessible bonus episode of my web series, Sam and Pat are Depressed. It is a funny comedy episode of a web series about mental illness and the the various things that you observe while being mentally ill. Uh, and it's an episode about how weird remote therapy is. And I have a lot of thoughts. So please go watch that. In terms of things that I'm actively doing, I have two podcasts, one where we rewatch every episode of the television show Burn Notice, a podcast called Burn, Noticed. Very good title, very good podcast. You should definitely listen. I also have a practical filmmaking podcast with uh, another filmmaker called Breaking Out of Breaking In, where we try to dispense practical filmmaking advice and how to make great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game, because we think that like capitalism, Hollywood is inherently broken, and maybe we don't want to play by their rules. Maybe one would play by our own. And I mean, I guess next is I'm moving to LA. So if anybody has cool writing job opportunities, opportunities remote or otherwise that they hear of that's hopefully what's next for me is that lots of people will say I like that lady who had a bummer podcast conversation about white supremacy I think she should write for my comedy television program I'm manifesting it right now that's what's gonna happen comedy show about white supremacy (laughs) it should all be comedy right Mm -hmm. it should be that's the thing with uh, and I'll say this one more thing about Trump and then we don't have to talk about (laughs) about him when I honestly when 2016 you know when that first happened I know a lot of comics were like, oh, we're good for four years. Yeah, I don't think that anyone thought that for long. Yeah. Because like the problem is that comedy works best when you abstract and make absurd something. The problem is that this administration is already abstracted and absurd from the norm. So like you can't make jokes because anything he's about to do is so much stupider. (laughs) So then you just have to, you're stuck (laughs) with this point of like, do I give him ideas or do I just sort of, stop doing bits for a second and say, hey, this man is destroying our country. We have to stop him. And most comedians, I would say most comedians that I respect ended up on that side, but that sucks. Cause like, they don't want to do that. They want to tell jokes, but unfortunately they're now put in a position where they're either giving the Trump administration great new ideas for horrible things they can do to people, or, you know, just stop the bits for a little bit and say, sorry, everybody. Uh, we got a bit serious right now. Everything's bad. I'm really sorry. Trump, please stop doing this. For the love of God, <laughs> let me do comedy again. You're ruining comedy. <laughs> (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's honestly, that's the real victim of all of this administration is comedy. <laughs> comedy was the real victim. Yeah, no, said no one ever, except all the straight white men in comedy. Oh, man. <laughs> now, luckily, there's none of those here. Yeah. Where can where can folks find you? Um, I know you, you have a YouTube channel, um, and that's where Ace and Anxious is, over 100,000 views. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, let folks know where they can find you and they can check out your work. Yeah, uh, you can find a comprehensive look at my work at BrieCastellini.com. Uh, if you Google my name, it'll be the first thing that comes up. So you can find Ace and Anxious there. You can find my various web series, my other short film work, other things that I've worked on and I'm really proud of, as well as links to all of my podcasting adventures. Um, and if you're looking to find me on social media, I am at World on every platform. So that's B-R-I-S-O-W-N-W-O-R-L-D based on a song that I wrote as an 11-year-old. I don't know. I picked my social media media handles really young and then had to stick uh, with the branding. So here we are, Breezone World. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter, though. So if you follow me on Instagram and are like, she hasn't posted in six years. Well, I'm sorry, go to Twitter. That's where I am. But yeah, I, I hope to hear from you, all of you people who want to hire me and put me in your comedy program for all of my white supremacy rants. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to Brie Castellini for sharing her world with you. Special thank you to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing this podcast. Check us out on social media. Say hello. Send some love. We're at Queer to My Heart on Twitter and Near and Queer to My Heart on Facebook and Instagram. Also check out our merch at tpublic.com, T-E-E-public.com. We love you. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.